Hello, and welcome back to Season 6 of Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Rev. Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Ash Wednesday Lectionary. Our amazing guests this week are the Rev. Jerry Menard, a.k.a. the People's Priest, who is a spiritual renegade and social revolutionary in Houston, Texas. As a two-spirit, so Chihuahua person, Jerry seeks to bring healing medicine through pastoral care and public witness at the intersection of church and society. The Rev. Michelle Dayton, who is the rector of St. Catherine's Episcopal Church in Martin, South Dakota, and the superintending presbyter of Pine Ridge Episcopal Mission. As an emergency physician for 20 years in southeastern Ohio, she noticed how trauma in all its forms separates us from God, one another, and our true selves. And last but not least, the Rev. Jazzy Bostock, who is a Kanaka Maoli woman serving St. John the Baptist and Maluhia Lutheran Church in Waianae, Hawaii. She and her wife are foster parents currently awaiting their next placement. They have a small homestead consisting of raised garden beds, a flock of hens, a hive of bees, a dog, and a cat. You'll hear some of her birds in the background who wanted to be guests on today's podcast. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being willing to join us and share your wisdom. On our first episode of the season, we're focusing on Ash Wednesday. What comes up for you when you hear Ash Wednesday and kind of what do you think about when you think about it? Ash Wednesday is what got me back to the Episcopal Church. I was raised in the Episcopal Church. Then I had a few decades in the evangelical world. And one Lent, pre-Lent, it was like, I need some ashes. And that's what sort of got me on my journey towards ordination, um, because it was home. Hmm. Ash Wednesday always makes me think about uh, mortality, right? Like the frailty and fragility of life. And that's been particularly close recently. I've had a couple of folks in my congregations going through health challenges, and none of them particularly old, you know, young parents. And just, we always live on that precipice, right? Live in the unavoidable condition of our own mortality, which means that death is very close at hand. But most Mm. of the time and most of the year, we push it off. We talk about resurrection, how death is not the end. You know, all of those kinds of sort of pats on the back to soften that blow. And I think for me, Ash Wednesday, when you really look at the liturgy, it is pretty unavoidably bleak. And that can sometimes feel depressing. And sometimes it can actually feel really like a relief because we spend so much time trying to ignore this mortalness and the fleshy frailness of ourselves. Um, And so to have like one time where we on purpose just communally acknowledge that that is the condition of our aliveness is that there will then be a condition of deadness. Yeah, sometimes can feel like such a a relief and a good sort of healing thing to just bring out into the light and talk about. I feel like y'all have all given such beautiful, poignant, very personal explanations of Ash Wednesday. And I'm over here thinking, I do not like Ash Wednesday because it reminds me of dust. (laughs) (laughs) 
and how I do not like dusting, um, <laughs> and how just how silly I think the day is. Although there is some beautiful theological things that could be said about this idea of birth and death and rebirth and the continuation of this beautiful story that we've all been gifted. But that's my first initial thought is like, ugh, I hate dusting. And we have to put all this dust on our face. Ugh. The thing that I love about dust is we all come from dust, right? It reminds us of all of creation and kind of grounds us again. Because so often, especially in first world, there's so much technology and we're so divorced from some of what you were talking about, Jazzy, is we're divorced and separated and there is a chasm between us and creation and earth and actual life. And so it's a great reminder that we came from dust and holy breath and we returned to dust. And to me, that is a, that's such a grounding and a settling phrase. Remember that you were dust and to dust you will return. I always think about in Lakota, we talk about going on the hill or crying for a vision and kind of thinking about Lent as a time of doing that process. And Ash Wednesday might be like the time that you're beginning it. And I always think, you know, usually if you do that, you're climbing up on a hill and in the Black Hills, it's always really dusty. And so that kind of makes me think about that. This time we talk a lot about sin and being penitential. How do we confess sin and talk about sin, like the idea of not being in right relationship without moving to a place of shame? You know, the difference between like, I have done something bad versus I am bad. And I think especially maybe as folks from oppressed groups, we often have a lot of that shame from our own internalized, whatever it might be, misogyny or homophobia or racism. How do we do that? Good question. Um, I've been thinking a lot recently about sort of some things that my folks will sort of confess to me, right? Oh, Kahu, I felt so angry. I just wanted to swear at her. <laughs> and those to me are not sins. They're just conditions of humanness. So I've been really thinking about, and I think Ash Wednesday is a good kind of time to sort of parse that out. Like what about us is just human, right? And just mm. mortal and just fleshy. Like we're gonna feel a whole spectrum of emotions. And it is not true that when you feel one of the quote unquote bad emotions or hard emotions that you are being sinful, right? You're just being your created self. You know, I don't think my dog or cat like judge themselves when they feel annoyed with each other or annoyed with <laughs> us, right? Like they're just, that's their creatureliness. Like my dog, if you take the covers from her in the night, well, cause she thinks it's her bed, right? Not our bed. But right. if you take the covers, then she'll give you a little growl. I don't think she feels guilt or shame about that. I think she's like, you're taking my covers. Like, I don't like that. And sometimes I think we sort of confuse what is creaturely about us, particularly when it comes to things like desire mm. or needs or wants or, you know, sort of claiming of like some of the harder emotions, feeling angry, feeling covetous, you know, all of that stuff. Some of it can lead us into sinful thinking, can lead us away from God. But I don't necessarily think in and of itself it is bad or wrong or to be condemned. And so 
I don't know that I have a clean answer for that question of um, sin and shame, but I just, I notice in sometimes what I feel or what I have confessed to me in, you know, not necessarily in rites of penitence or whatever, but just in sort of passing um, with the people I serve, that there is sometimes an unhelpful link between what we go through as humans and this kind of sense of being judged for that or sinfulness attached to it. And I think they're two separate things. I think sin has much more ill intent and Mm. is evil in its core in a way that anger, I don't think is evil in its core. I really like what you said, Josie, about um, our creatureliness because sin is, is such a separation, right? Mm. And so Lent is an opportunity to remember. We have been dismembered from ourselves, from God, from one another. And so we remember, we, we remember instead of, sorry, Augustine, not original sin, <laughs> original belovedness. Yes. That yes. before the foundation of the world, God thought of you and treasures you and sings over you and delights in you. And it is that remembering that seriously blows away all of that detritus of sin and shame. Because if I know absolutely in my marrow that I am beloved by the creator of the universe, then I can see all of the other creatures with those same eyes. Mm -hmm. And that is the, that's the reconciliation, right? That Jesus already did. And so that's the repentance. And I love the seasons that we always have an opportunity in the liturgical seasons to begin again, to turn again. And Mm. um, yeah. And to remember, to remember who we are, whose we are, how much we are loved. I, I'm feeling just a lot of gratitude for being able to hear um, such beautiful wisdom from such uh, wonderful sisters in the body of Christ. Uh, so that's really wonderful. Y'all said exactly everything that I wanted to say. Um, and, and so I was like, well, I can just sit here and be, you know, be beautiful and, and, <laughs> and not have to worry about anything. Um, but uh, along that line, Michelle and, and Jazzy, you said, you know, I'm a big advocate of um, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Fox coined the uh, original blessing. I'm completely opposed to the doctrine of original sin. And I'm really... It would, you would be hard-pressed to find me preaching about sin in general because I just don't think it's necessary. I think that God, God's default programming is radical obsession. Um, I think God is radically obsessed with every single part of who we are and who we are becoming. And if sin is, in, is anything, I think it's a forgetting of who we are, the beloved children of God. Um, and... I was taught right in my native tradition that we are guests in this realm um, and we are put here on purpose with purpose. And that purpose is to be in right relationship with all of creation. And that can happen in a moment or it can happen in a lifetime. And my only job is to do that, is to live into that purpose. And all of creation and the creator is doing that with me. 
It's not a competition, it's a collaboration. So I'm just living into the blessing that already was created from the moment that the Big Bang happened to this current time and as this story unfolds. So for me, Ash Wednesday, the season of Lent, is all about, as like you said in the beginning, uh, you used my favorite word, remember, to bring back to mind that we're part of this cosmic story that's really fabulous. And, and let's just dance in the midst of all of it. I think about original sin, I, I think about it in terms of like, from our Lakota context, we always say that, you know, only the creator is perfect. And so if anything, you know, we, original sin would just be the sense that we are not made to be perfect. We are perfectly made, but we are not made to be perfect. Not that that makes us inherently bad. I'm wondering too, like a lot of times I think we've been talking kind of about individual sin, but also we can think about corporate sin. How might we think about, especially in terms of like our churches and their role in racism or their role in how they've treated women or LGBT people, how might we bring that into Ash Wednesday or bring that into Lent or what might be a way that we could do that? You know, when I think about the communities that I serve, I have such a hard time thinking about that corporate sense of sin because while the church writ large is really white and heteronormative, like my small congregations are mostly Hawaiian and Kanakamali and mm. like, you know what I mean? Like they are mm -hmm. not coming from a place of power and privilege. So right. that sense of like who the church is, is absolutely like statistically true and is not true of my very small congregation. And so having them or having us together sort of collectively atone for this bigger institution feels, honestly, it feels a little bit akin to like knowing that all the greenhouse gases are created by like 10 major companies and then being told like, but you should recycle. Because you kind of, right? right? It's a bit like, but it's not like, I didn't do that though. It was like Nestle, right? It's like Procter and Gamble. Like, I don't know that me right. putting my Diet Coke can in the blue bin, like I, I do it, right? I Just to be clear, I do recycle. But, but I don't know that that's like the way forward in terms of actual, sustainable, meaningful, lasting change. And I feel kind of similarly when we talk about like the church, I have a really hard time knowing that I am part of this, particularly in ordained leadership, right? We are part of this mm -hmm. institution that has many, many wrongs to atone to. And yet I'm not quite sure where to go with that. I'm not quite sure how to lead my people through that in a useful way. If there is a way to sort of atone for wrongs of the past when they are not true of me or of the people that I serve in this moment. Mm. I'm in um, Oglala Lakota land, and so I have nine congregations that are almost entirely Lakota people. Mm -hmm. And I am not. So it's, it's the both and. So I appreciated your naming that, Jazzy, because one of my churches in particular, we have a stove to heat it. Most of them don't have any running water, which is great because it gets so cold, right? We'd have frozen pipes. Mm -hmm. So we don't have frozen pipes. So we see the blessing in it. And I'm curious about in the ways the church has 
miscommunicated the lavish love of God to people. And so some of my people have taken on things that aren't theirs to carry. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so how do we repent? How do we turn from that taking on what's, uh, what was never ours that doesn't belong to us, but was put on, was oppressed on, right? Like Mm -hmm. a decal on folks. And so Mm -hmm. the corporate confession of sin yeah, that's not the same as actually talking about the schools, the boarding schools, and the many, many dysfunctions that we have had within the church, one way or another, othering mm. our beloved siblings. I feel a lot of uh, testimony in my spirit <laughs> to a lot of the things that you're saying. I think along those lines, uh, Dr. Dabor Mate recently wrote a new book called The Myth of Normal. And in it, he discussed these different things that we're dealing with right now in our current society that we consider to be normal, like uh, mental health issues and uh, environmental racism and things like that. They're actually not normal like there are their responses to trauma like they are byproducts to trauma and i recently had uh, an encounter with a friend of mine i understood this at a different level in that midst of that moment where i i happened to be sharing with him that um i have some frustrations with some of the things that we do in church and he asked me why and i said well i feel really jaded about a lot of things and he kind of laughed and said, well, you're too young to feel that much jaded. Uh, he's quite a bit older than I am. And I said, well, no, that's actually not true. I'm traumatized. <laughs> so along those lines of like corporate sin, um, I really want to name that sometimes corporate sin manifests in the individual or the personal level and how trauma manifests in our body. I know for myself, as somebody who deals with mental health issues, I oftentimes have to remind myself, do not give people who have harmful intentions free rent in your mind. So learning to reclaim your consciousness, reclaim all of that, I think is a way to deal with corporate sin. I think corporate sin can be something very big, but it has very personal and unique ways that it impacts people. I think that lens of trauma is so helpful. It makes me see that kind of issue of corporate sin and corporate sort of confession a little bit differently. Because what we're actually talking about then is like healing from what is often really generational trauma. Mm. Thank you, Jazzy, for sharing that. I'm wondering about like, sometimes when I preach, you know, I have like a church that's mostly white congregation and a church is mostly native. And I think when I talk, talk about corporate sin, I'll kind of talk about racism as a whole at the white congregation and kind of make sure they're aware of it. And how are we thinking about ways that we might be doing things that we're not aware of or some of that piece. And then I think with the native church, I might talk about how is institutional racism or institutional racism, how are we affected by it, but also how are we internalizing it and how can we like try and prevent that internal racism from us, what we do. But that made me think about fasting, which is like, I remember talking to Jen, like, do we fast? Do we not fast? And my friend Jen, who's native, is like, 
Indian people have given up enough. We gave up our children and our language and our culture and our blow. Like she went on this tirade and she was like, we have given up enough. We don't need to give anything up for Lent. And I was like, you know what? Maybe there's probably something there. And so sometimes I tell people, I'm like, you know, if it helps you give something up, if you think it'll help you, but if you aren't among the most privileged folks, that might not help you because you're already giving up stuff just by virtue of your life. But what are y'all thoughts about fasting, not fasting? I'm curious about fasting rather than the classic is, oh, I'm giving up coffee or I'm giving up chocolate or right one mm-hmm. of those pleasures, but instead choosing in. I am going to intentionally every day write a note to someone who has impacted my life, mm. expressing my gratitude. So an adding in rather than a taking away, because truly any of our practices, they are not transactions by which we somehow con God into being nice in order to change our situation, because God is always present with us. The creator is always with us in the midst of our great joys and our great sorrows. And so so I've come over the years to consider what is the new spiritual practice that I would like to take on during this opportunity to slow down and be quiet. Yeah, I think, I mean, Ash Wednesday and Lent fall almost always so soon after New Year's. The temptation is to sort of you know, re-up your resolution or re-up your plan, <laughs> right? Like, right. oh, I'm supposed to be working on losing weight, so I guess I should give up dairy. <laughs> like, I'm going to give up gluten, right? <laughs> and it's not so much about the pleasure of it as it is about the, like, yeah, sort of casually, but, like, seriously wanting to change something about our creatureliness or our embodiedness. And... I like the reading from Isaiah, right? The fast of like loosing the bonds of injustice. Like what would it look like to fast from gossip or to Mm. fast from, gosh, that would be hard, but like fast from thinking unkind things about that person who really annoys me in my congregation, right? (laughs) To fast from like those kinds of things that certainly are sinful, lead us away from God and yet are hard to kind of control. So not necessarily a fast to control our bodies or contort our bodies in some way, but a fast to sharpen or to discipline. Yeah, what for me is often in my thoughts. I have a wayward monkey brain, right? That (laughs) finds it hard to focus and has a lot of opinions about what other people should be doing or should not be doing and why that person hasn't picked up their dog's poop on the side of the road when I always (laughs) 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 my brain is real good at that kind of stuff and so I wonder about fasting from those kinds of thoughts or experiences rather than fasting from chocolate and like added bonus if I drop five pounds. Mm-hmm. This whole concept of like fasting versus doing as both and kind of reality. Uh, I like to use the image of an escalator. We're all on an escalator and we're all kind of going up or we're going down. But some of us can choose to take a couple of steps down or a couple of steps up. 
And depending on your social location and things like that, that influences whether or not you're a person who steps up or steps down. You still are going the same direction as everyone else, but you're more mindful of your um, your impact on society when you take this under, into consideration. And so I think uh, when it comes to fasting and doing, we need to take that into account. And as Shaniqua was alluding to earlier about Native people, we have given up a lot of stuff. Uh, and people of color in general have given up a lot of stuff. So maybe we might be the folks who need to take a couple of steps forward up the escalator um, so that we have a little bit more of an advantage to get to the top quicker or get to the bottom quicker. Um, and other folks who have more privilege um, can take a couple of steps back and say, let's make some space so that there's an even playing field. Again, we're still all getting to the same place, but we're taking this into account. So that's kind of an image I like to play with during Lent. I love Isaiah talking about, is this not the fast that I choose? And, and then thinking about the fast, what kind of fast would we need to have that would break the bonds of injustice? Or what kind of fast would we need to have that would break every yoke? And so maybe fasting from those internalized racism or internalized homophobia messages that we give ourselves, like who the heck do I think I am, or I'm not good enough. And I don't know how to necessarily fast from that because it kind of happens, you know, involuntarily, but maybe for every one of those, I have to say something positive or, you know, something like that, or thinking about how my, for everyone I hear, I have to give somebody else a positive message that my experience, I don't know. I'm just thinking, but Isaiah also talks about being a watered garden. And where or how do you think we as a church or we as congregations could be more like a watered garden? Or maybe how can we be the water that waters the garden? This really recalls the dust in creation, doesn't it? Right? Because the whole idea of fasting is embodying our hunger for Christ. And here, along with the dust, there are these springs of water whose waters never fail. And so for me, it's also back to creation. We are created by the creator. We are a part of creation. All creation waits with eager expectation for us to discover who we were designed to be in right relationship with all of creation. And again, this is the remembering, this is the creatureliness, this is the embodiment. And one of the practices that we have done in the past is set up little stations, little experiential stations at the back of the nave where people could contemplate a passage, do something tangible, write blocks that they would like write on little wooden blocks that they would like to give up something mm. or something that is blocking their relationship with God, with themselves, with someone else, and just making a little wall and just allowing it to be there. Um, and so that's one way to engage more of ourselves, right? As we stand for the gospel as we kneel in penitence, being embodied and, and actually doing something with our hands creatively, that's one way to become a spring of living water, I think. Hmm. I think of that metaphor more like 
Jesus is the living water, right? And so all we have to do to become like a watered garden is like receive Jesus, right? Mm. All we have to do is, is just receive it. And it sounds simple, but I actually think it's one of the harder things to do. You know, there's so much sort of blocking us. It's like the difference between being soil that allows seeds to grow and being cement pavement, right? That hardness of (laughs) that, like the stuff that blocks us, right, Michelle, that you were talking about, like that, whatever those sort of layers are that keep us from letting that water penetrate us is what keeps anything from growing, right? I mean, sometimes you get in a crack of cement, a little weed or a dandelion or something will grow through. But often there's sort of just so much junk there that it won't. I really think, I mean, where I see our church and our congregations, my congregations becoming that watered garden are just the places that people have really cleared their heart spaces to receive Mm. gift that Christ already has given us and is giving us and will continue to give us, right? And that's where I feel it in my own life too. I feel the most like fruitfulness, not where I have tried the hardest to prove myself or where I have put my most of my time, but where I have like prayed a lot and where I have left a lot of space for the spirit to work. It is unfortunately very rarely by my own doing that something comes (laughs) up right you know it is most often by a sort of yeah spaciousness and holding it openly and praying and all of those good hard things um, for me to do totally take things out of my hands and rely again and force me to put my trust again on god and it's in those places that i you know turn around and look back and go oh that sprouted, right? Like that was unexpected. I, I, I didn't even send that email or whatever, right? And it's there that that goodness of God is always coming. Yeah, I think for me, that lesson, that wateredness and abundance is like clearing away all the nonsense and all the concrete and all the blockages that stand in the way of just letting Jesus, fill up my heart and fill up my life. I'm a big believer in reminding people that they have the spiritual authority to begin again whenever they need to. You can always start again. You can always think again. You can always begin again. You can pause and say, "Mm, let me wait a moment and then step back in. Like You don't have to be 100% in every situation. We are not rushing to get somewhere. But rather, the radical message of the gospel is that if you slow down, the goodness of God, which is always running towards you, will catch up to you. And I think that that's really one of the beautiful messages, um, or reframing, rather, that we need to do with Lent, is that in Lent, sometimes we fall into this subconscious idea that We're doing all these penitential things because we're trying to earn our worthiness in the eyes of God. Mm. God is really suspicious of everything we are. And if we take that and say, no, that's actually not what we're doing. We're actually slowing down 
so that we can be like the prodigal child who is coming back to the forgiving father, the forgiving parent, who sees us coming along the horizon. And before, instead of just waiting there for us to show up to, to them, the creator runs to us. And, you know, that's one of the interesting things about that parable is that that's the only time when Jesus has ever really said that the creator is running towards us, is engaging us, is preemptively engaging us. And so I think during Lent, we want to use this metaphor of like the, the watering of the garden. One of the ways that we water the garden is helping to remember, remind people, you can begin again, you can start over. There's no shame in starting over. And if you have to take more time, do it. Because the longer you take time to slow down, the more of a chance that the goodness of God will catch up to you and will embrace you. I feel like Isaiah has this wonderful recipe in there about all the things to do, you know, remove the yoke from among you, offering food to the hungry. What it says later too is, uh, your ancient roots shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And I read that and I can just see so much of our church is like full of this nostalgia, maybe some toxic nostalgia. And I can just see them being like, <laughs> oh, this is telling us our church needs to be rebuilt and this triumphalistic spirit and we need to have a 500 foot tall, whatever, steeple. And, <laughs> and so I'm wondering what ancient roads need to be rebuilt or, or what kind of, what might it look like to repair the breach in a way that isn't toxically nostalgic? I think repairing the breach, I mean, to me, it's so much of what we've been talking about, like the doctrine of original sin. We need to repair that mm. nonsense. You know what I mean? Yes. We need to, yeah, yeah. We totally yeah. need to replace that with original blessing and original belovedness and like get that doctrine out of town. That's, we're done with that now. That has wreaked havoc long enough. I think we need to, like, repairing the breach with us and the created world. Mm. That deep divorce. Oh my God. Yes. You know, that we don't walk softly on the earth, that we have food that comes from styrofoam containers and stores. And, you know, I raise chickens and people will go, yeah, but you never kill them. Right. And I'm like, well, do you eat chicken? I do. Like, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So yeah, when they're done laying, we kill them, you know? That's where your meat comes from. Like when you go to McDonald's, that was once a hen who probably didn't live as nice a life as they do in my backyard, I'll tell you. Right. Um, but that kind of like massive divorce, right? That from what we put in our bodies, where it comes from, like working the earth and just being aware of our, of the impact that we are having relative to the rest of creation. Right. When we are building homes and forcing forest animals into smaller and smaller spaces and then getting mad at them that they're in our backyard, mm -hmm. like that's not their fault. We're disproportionately taking up their space. And I think so much of when I hear repairing the breach, I think immediately of that breach with our created world. And I think that goes back to like the Garden of Eden and the breach that was sort of embedded in the mistranslation of like having dominion over the earth. I think that's such an original breach, original sin, mm. just mm -hmm. misnomer that has got to be 
repaired. And so when I think of, you know, ancient ruins that are rebuilt, I'm not thinking about more concrete. I'm thinking about how we get back to that place where we are naked and we know that God loves us in our bodies and we are one part of a bigger created story and we are responsible to our kin to our four-legged kin and our furry kin and our feathered kin along those lines jazzy when you were speaking of animals i don't eat meat (laughs) but i appreciate people who actually raise animals and eat that instead of buying from the stores for a variety of reasons but along those lines too of like the environment and healing our relationship with creation I think of the things that we do in our politics that deeply impact creation. I live here in Texas and I have visited the border probably a thousand times uh, doing a lot of binational organizing around immigration reform and, and all these things. And I remember when I went to Nogales, Arizona, and I was visiting the wall there, that the portion of the wall that was there um, and praying with people and, and visiting some of my relatives actually who live on the opposite side of the uh, the wall. I remember just being struck to tears by seeing bones of animals who had died next to the wall because the wall interfered with their migration patterns. Something that for me as a Christian, I believe that that migration pattern was created by the creator. And so for me, that would be sin because we violated the law of the creator. So recognizing our political things, who we vote for, Uh, who we don't vote for, what kind of policies we advocate or do not advocate for is an important part of our conversation. I know it's really unpopular opinion in the church, but the gospel is political. We have to hold that and and be humble enough to say, yeah, this is the way we, we need to engage in the world. And it's not just with animals and creation, but also with one of our uh, our fellow siblings. I'm thinking in particular of all the different laws that are being passed not just in Texas, but around the country that are essentially erasing trans folks and gender expansive folks out of existence. And that's also an intersectional issue too, because there's a lot of cultures who see gender variant people as very sacred. And so it's inherently racist as well. So I think some of these intersectional places, the church needs to stand there and say, this is part of living a life of faith, is to question these things, to interrogate them, and to say, this needs to be transformed. And let's work to transform it together. Becoming a repairer of the breach and a restorer of the streets to live in, it's not just the restorer, and and both of you have talked about this, it's not just a restorer of the streets for the two-leggeds to live in, right? It is for all creation. And I appreciate, Jerry, your discussion about policies and the way we live together, politics, because that feels very uncomfortable for some folks. And the Magnificat, this writing in Isaiah, it is all political. It is removing the yokes dismantling oppressive systems. And I really believe that Lent is an opportunity, especially Ash Wednesday, to begin in our hearts. Where am I complicit? 
where have I said yes to something that oppresses me, oppresses those I love? Where have I been an oppressor? Whether it's of myself because I bought into misogyny, whatever it is. And again, turning, returning. And as I turn, then I have the opportunity to welcome the original design that we are all living together as beloveds of one another and beloveds of our creator. So let's sort of move over to the gospel. I feel like I think the more I'm hearing us all talk, I really feel called to preach on the Isaiah passage for Ash Wednesday. I'm really just, I feel like we have to touch on the gospel because that's what probably most people are going (laughs) to preach on. Um, But part of me is like so interesting. I feel like it's kind of ironic because right, Matthew says like, or well, Matthew talking about Jesus is saying like, you know, don't practice your piety in front of all these people. And yet, you know, here we are with COVID, we've had to like live stream so much of our worship services, which is kind of antithetical to what that gospel says. And then it's also like, you know, you need to do this all in private and don't be making a scene. And yet then we have these big ash crosses that we wear around for the rest of the day. And where does that go? What, what do folks think about that? That's why I'm a bit subversive in this regard in the fact that I don't actually get ashes on Ash Wednesday. When people ask me why, I point them back to the gospel. I said, because we're not supposed to be doing that. It literally says so in the text that we read right before we distribute the ashes. It's like, you can remember that you are dust in different ways. My first Ash Wednesday as an ordained person, I had been exposed to COVID. And Mm. so I could not participate in the imposition of the ashes with my people. And that was so hard. That was so very difficult. And there's something about the ashes. I am publicly saying, beyond wearing a dog collar, I am publicly saying, this is who I am. Hmm. And without a collar around my neck, how can you tell? How, how do I look different from the culture in which we have been steeped, a culture that is unhealthy and unholy. And so it's like you get on a plane and you see somebody in a collar and you're like, there's somebody else who I am believing is a praying person here with me. You see a smudge on somebody's forehead. Ah, there is someone who has some of the same world perspective, perhaps, that I do. It's a belonging rather than a fitting into culture. Hmm. What I love about the ashes on forehead, I mean, realistically, not many people do see me except my congregants because I sit in my office, right? It's a, it's a <laughs> and uh, our services are like 5.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. So I, I'm not you know, running around town like, hey, you know, check out my forehead. But what I love about them is that 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 cross is so reminiscent of the cross we receive at baptism, right? Mm. And that chrism oil that soaks into us and stays. I once heard a really powerful message about the, there's some birds outside my window fighting over something. I'm not sure if you can hear them. 
maybe they're having an Ash Wednesday debacle as well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, the oil that soaks in and stays when we are claimed, sealed, and marked as Christ's own forever, and these ashes which will rub away and wash away, right? And so there is something really beautiful about and metaphorical about what will leave what is temporary, the dustiness of us, and what sinks and what stays, right? The belovedness of us. I think sometimes about it, Michelle, you use the word of belonging, and I sometimes think of it in the sense of of becoming. How am I becoming more fully the beloved child of God? How am I becoming more fully the liberating archetype in this scenario and a society that is inherently oppressive? Like, How is that initiating that vocation within me? So the ritual itself, I think, is, is, is the belonging. And it's, for me, it's also about a becoming, an opportunity to, again, think again, but also reimagine. So I'm going to ask the forbidden question, <laughs> which there may be some, I've heard it hotly contested, um, some people want like just regular ashes. Some people want glitter ashes. Just what are your thoughts about glitter ashes or regular ashes? I Before I have you answer, I'm going to tell you what we did last year. I had like the congregants write out on pieces of paper the things that they wanted to change about their life or things that they didn't like or things where they felt like they were out of place. And they folded up and put them in a little basket. And then we burned those. And that was the ashes that we mixed with the palms to put on their forehead and so I felt like it was kind of this way of sort of letting some of that go and uh it seemed to work well it was a little hard to get them to burn but we had to like he some one of our congregants brought a propane torch and was like and so it, it, it did work eventually but okay so glitter no glitter what do folks feel or think last year we did um ashes to go downtown in front of the courthouse There were a number of us. It was an ecumenical group. And I cannot imagine in that very conservative town where I was serving, glitter. Mm. So in that context. And I have been told, I've not yet experienced Ash Wednesday here on the reservation, but I have been told that that, along with Christmas and Easter, are huge times for the people. And so I'm just learning. And I have this thing about glitter, mostly because it never goes away. (laughs) Unlike the ashes, which seem to go away so fast. Yeah. So I'm curious about that. You sent us these questions and I'm like, glitter ashes? Yes. Glitter ashes? No. I feel very conflicted. I've never done them. I think there can be something really beautiful about like, the mix of sort of our mortalness and the like transformation that God gives that, right? The sparkliness, the newness Mm. that God gives us in something transformative, in something that we allow to die. There's also just, they can maybe also be a way to avoid the uncomfortableness of death, uh, Mm. which I think is what Ash Wednesday is pointing us towards. I guess my hot take is sort of, if your people need glitter, give them glitter, (laughs) you know? And I felt like that sometimes. Sometimes I come around to Ash Wednesday and I'm like, 
I can totally take a reminder of my mortality and I'm in it. And sometimes I'm like, oh man, like that feels depressing and I can't take it. And, you know, and I've heard people say Mm -hmm. that about Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Like I come to church to hear good news, right? To hear, to be encouraged, not to like have depression. Depending on what kind of year it is, where you are in your social location, like what's been going on. If this is a year that you need glitter, go girl, you know, (laughs) and if it's not, then it's not. Um, But I think we should give ourselves grace. I I can imagine there will be some years in my ministry where I really need those ashes to have some sparkle to them. And I want to hold open that the door for myself and for my people (laughs) when that time should arise. Well, I'm definitely team glitter ashes for a lot of reasons. Nico and I have arguments about this from time. <laughs> but I take a much more, like, as both of you have elucidated, I take a pastoral response to it, that I think if it's something your community wants, do it. I Do I think that it should become standardized across the church? I don't think, I don't think so, and I also don't think that would ever happen. I particularly like them because um, as a queer person and as a two-spirit person, I like to play with the realities of the sacred and the profane, and I like to make things that are profane sacred and the sacred things profane, and and I like the kind of iconoclastic kind of thing to all of that. I remember when Glitter Ashes first started, and I thought, oh, that's fabulous. We're going to do that. And then I, I told Shaniqua uh, yesterday or whenever it was that I was like, if it was up to me, we would have a sprinkling right where we wouldn't use water. We would just use glitter. <laughs> and <laughs> um, and uh, my only caveat is anytime you use glitter, please be sure that you use uh, eco-friendly glitter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't harm any animals. And it also, if it gets into your eye, it won't uh, scratch your cornea. And then also, too, if it's washed away in the water or whatever, it won't harm anything. But yeah, so I I like that interplay. But I I think it's also just a a way to make something that it's a little hard be a a bit more soft and a little bit more inviting uh, for folks. And and maybe have the option when you do your uh, Ash Wednesday service, have that option. Have one station regular ashes, one station glitter ashes, and have somebody designated for both stations to do that. And people have the option. I mean, we do healing prayer during communion, and there are some people who don't think that that's appropriate hmm. because the communion itself is a healing prayer. We make those kinds of caveats. Why can't we do that with, with this? And um, I just think it's more fun when you have a little glitter and maybe if you have a drag queen doing it. <laughs> but I'm a lot more deviant than most people. So you have to take everything I say with a giant grain of salty glitter. <laughs> so Jesus talks about don't store up for yourselves treasured on earth. How has rust or moth consumed the treasures our church has stored up? I feel like our church does a really poor job of sharing. Like we have, Michelle, on your reservation and also on my reservation, we have churches that don't have running water, don't have electricity, and then we have Southern Ohio and Trinity Wall Street, right? And what are your thoughts about that? What can we learn from this passage or what what, what do we need to hear? I think it's a both and, isn't it? It sounds a smidge communist. However, I believe it is the abundance of God that 
that the culture of Christianity, of actually following Jesus is what you need something, here it is. It's interesting, yes, because I came from Southern Ohio to South Dakota. So I am living in the both end mm. and, and the contrast. And that's been brilliant as well because there's been partnerships in some ways. So I think globally, our church and across this land um, in the United States in particular, we have locked our doors too many times during the week. We have not invited in. And some of that, especially coming out of COVID, there's still, because we aren't really coming out of COVID, right? We are still seeing plenty of infections and deaths. And so there's some anxiety and fear associated with that. But all we have in our lives is time, money, and attention. And so if we look at those things, each of us in our context, in our churches, how are we spending it for those who are Jesus's favorites, those Mm. on the margins, those with the least? I think the great irony that I've experienced is that that sense of those with abundance should share. And yet like the bigger your cathedral, the more valuables there are in your church, the harder it is to open your doors. And the Mm. place that I serve now, we don't have a church building. My Episcopal church, well, there is a church building, but it's condemned for health and safety reasons. If you went in there, the floor would cave in. And so our altar is on wheels and we wheel it out and we set up the folding chairs and it's a big cacophonous noise to set up and then break down church every week. And it is the most beautiful thing that I have ever experienced. And those people in that congregation, in both of my congregations, they are most of them receiving public assistance, SNAP EBT benefits and Section 8 housing vouchers. And they would stop on the side of the road and give the shirt off their back. Mm. I have seen and received that kind of abundant generosity. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about abundance, like it is not about an amount of stuff, right? That makes us abundant or feel like we have enough or feel like we are cared for. In my congregations, it often feels like we're passing around the same nickel. You know, this week you Mm -hmm. need it, next week you need it, and next week you might need it. But there is such beautiful, oh my gosh, beautiful Christian community in passing around that nickel. Mm. And part of so many other congregations that have gold-plated silver chalices, and this is the nice set, and this is the Easter set, and this is... (laughs) you know, regular Sunday set. And they worry, they lock everything up super tight, because what if something happens to that, you know, Easter set of chalices, you know, it's not to condemn anyone, I can understand the wanting to be good stewards of what you've been left with and all of that stuff. But I just think, You know, if you looked at the economics of the communities I serve, you would think that they are poor. And yet I have seen more abundance 
and more Mm. generosity of spirit where I am than I have ever had the privilege of seeing anywhere else. And so I am sure, I am so sure that the folks that I serve are storing up treasures in heaven because on earth, there's not a whole lot to show for ourselves. There's a rotting church floor and busted pipes and toilets that have been fixed with paper clips. (laughs) But there is such living and that kind of community. I think something that often happens in our churches, especially the really big mainstream churches, is that we get so used to doing things a specific way that we create our habits into idols. And we forget the ancient treasure of the early church, which was creativity. And I think when we confront our scarcity mindset in churches and in nonprofits and in our our society in general, the way we confront it is through abundance, but really under abundance is the belief that in every situation there already there is all the things that you need. And you unlock those things through creativity. This is something that I became very aware of at the beginning of the pandemic when we were trying to all learn, like, how are we interacting with each other? How are we engaging with one another? And people developed all of these different mechanisms for just saying hi to each other. We had Zoom. We had car rallies. We had uh, birthday car birthday parades or we would go drive by someone's house, wish them happy birthday, and we would put signs on our cars and, you know, all those kinds of things. Like, that is creativity. That is the key that unlocks the abundance, which is inherent throughout creation. Animals do not think that there is not enough. It's not in their consciousness. They know that if they can't find something in this space, I'm going to move down here and I'll find something there. There's an assurance that there is enough they unlock that enoughness and creativity. And so I think if the church can reclaim that beautiful gift, that beautiful treasure of creativity, we can really remedy the scarcity mindset, not just a scarcity mindset, but this tendency to become kind of too stiff to be able to move and bend with the times. What are some ideas you have for this service? Anything unique? or knew that you might try. I love the idea of having these different stations in the back for folks to do something beforehand. I think I mentioned earlier, some of my folks are walking through different health concerns and health crises. And so I'm not quite sure how to do it in this service, but I've been really thinking about how I might incorporate healing prayer and that anointing with healing oil, either as part of the Ash Wednesday service or somewhere during Lent. And just really feeling that and sort of getting a little nudge from outside of myself that healing might be a theme, might be a need, might be a sort of response. And then I think deeper than that, like digging into a little bit of what that healing looks like, right? Because it's not as if you're anointed and then the cancer leaves your body, right? Mm -hmm. Disentangling like some of what God's healing might look like when it is not necessarily manifesting in a totally clean, you know, bill of health. And yeah, working a little bit with that idea and with the maybe more like peace around healing or peace around God's presence. I'd like to 
yeah, bubble wrap some of Ash Wednesday with that presence and peace of God. I remember as a chaplain at the hospital, you made me think of this story, actually, Jesse. There was a, he, I don't think he was that, I was probably like in his 20s or 30s, man who was dying of AIDS. And his mom came, I got called because he was dying, but his mom came and she had like, they had been estranged or whatever, and she was there. And one of the last things he said was, am I a, whatever his last name was, like, am I a broken leg, for example, if it were me? And she like cried and she says, of course you are, even though she had like disowned him years ago. And I was like, I thought that I was like, that's an example of healing where he's, his physical body's not going to survive this, but you know, this, the healing and the repair of that reconciliation between the mother and her son was so powerful. And of course I was bawling. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> but um, that's what happens sometimes um, when you're a chaplain is you cry too. Um, but I was thinking about that as healing and what, what kind of things might be healing in those processes. Something else you made me think of as you were talking about watering garden, I was like, what if we did the sermon all about how are we open to this um, living water or how are we open to this watered garden? And what if we planted seeds? Like here we have these ashes, which is kind of like dirt. And then you, you know, you have the dirt and in a cup and you know how you put the little seed in there and you water it. And like, what an interesting way to think about Lent as you're thinking about resurrection. Here you are watching this thing grow over the weeks that you're waiting for Lent to come. What a neat, anyway, you gave me that idea. So that that's one that we might try. I love that. And then keep the little plants on the altar each week, right? Yeah. That would be awesome. And, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, see them growing. And I love that. I always think that um, Lent is a great opportunity to have all the conversations about funeral preparations. Mm. That sounds a little off, but over a period of eight days, I just had four funerals and wakes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes... There's some interpersonal conflict amongst relatives, unsurprisingly. And so coming in new to the area, it's like, wow, what would it look like if folks were able to write down, okay, here's the list. These are possible scriptures. What do you want? What do you choose? One night wake, two night wake. Where do you want your final resting place on earth to be? What's your choice? And then that is such a relief to the family. Mm-hmm. And so Ash Wednesday, that's a great opportunity to start having these conversations because I have so many elders. I have so very many elders. I really, the more I'm thinking about the plan idea, the more I'm thinking, oh, that's fabulous. That would be really great too, to do with children as well. Mm-hmm. A great activity with them. I like to play with the gesture of the imposition of the ashes. I think it's important to empower folks to understand that this is not a priestly thing um, in the sense of like, this is only a priest can do this. In fact, everybody can do this. Having multiple stations set up to invite people to come and distribute the ashes amongst themselves so that they can practice being priestly people. But I also too like to invite folks to reimagine the gesture of the imposition of ashes. So instead of taking the ashes with your thumb and making a cross or a circle or a dot or whatever it is that you do, a hexagon uh, (laughs) uh, with the ashes, why not take the ashes and sprinkle them on the top of your head? The same way that we do when we put the dust on the coffin or maybe rub them on your hair or something like that. Something that allows you to have a more sensory 
feeling of it that you remember. You know, you always remember when somebody rubs your hair or your back. That sensation lasts in your body longer than somebody that touches your forehead. And so doing things like that, being a little bit more playful with that, but also to the playing of the authority figure, you know, allowing other people to share in that power, I think is a beautiful lesson that we also too can apply to the season of Lent, that this is about sharing power and giving power over, you know, the kenosis means to empty out. So we're emptying out our power into the community, which is ultimately where it comes from. My last question is, you know, what ideas do you have for preaching Ash Wednesday? Michelle, I think you used a phrase earlier about knowing in your marrow, your belovedness. And I think regardless of what the message is that you preach on Ash Wednesday, let it be steeped in that. Let it not be steeped in badness or contriteness or penitentness at the expense of that belovedness. Let it be preached from a place of marrow knowing belovedness and received in that way as well. I'm feeling really drawn to the Isaiah passage after talking with you all and to that sense of breaking down our barriers and receiving water that is being offered and receiving nourishment and repairing some of what is broken inside us individually and inside of us collectively. But I think ultimately the message that we preach and that we live and that we like what makes us different to the world that we live in, what gives us that set apartness is and should be the narrow known belovedness. Not that church folks are the only ones who are beloved, but that we are aware of and acting from behaving from that place instead of behaving from a suspicious or judgmental or, you know, all the other ways that we can act towards one another. So I'm going to keep that in mind as I prepared for Ash Wednesday. I'm really thinking about embracing the creatureliness and the grief and the death. So often we move away, we step back. And so I'm curious about what does this look like when we are secretly giving alms, secretly serving in terms of the gospel, and even taking it to Isaiah, yes, it's not that we are going to be known as repairers of the breach, it's that that's who we actually are. Mm. And so pressing into, yes, this is the course of life, the course of our journey. We started with God, we continue with God on this ground, we end with God in the ground. And the one consistent thing is always God and God's abundant love. And we get to be vehicles. We get to spread that in dismantling that which is not love. And so that's what I'm thinking about in particular in the, in the Isaiah passage. Even in Joel, there's some of that. I used to be a... Um elementary school teacher 
particularly I taught music and religion. And so I really honed the skill of taking something really big and broad and nuanced and distilling it down to its little nuts and bolts. <laughs> so when I preach, I kind of sometimes fall on that skill set a little bit. And so for Lent and Ash Wednesday in particular, I like to return to this mechanism that I have that is three words, small, gentle, and kind. How can we do small things with great impact how can we be gentle with ourselves, with our ideas, with our concepts, our doctrines, our dogmas? And how can we be kind to ourselves and to those around us, human and non-human animals, in a way that allows people to see Christ in us? I oftentimes like to preach on this as a way to kind of have a mechanism that people can use to say, okay, well, I can do something small, and I can also learn to practice to remember to be gentle, and I can do something kind. And it gives people a mechanism that they can kind of carry with them to uh, take this really big thing that kind of seems really heavy of Lent and distill it down to something a little bit more manageable and more, more playful. Well, thank you so much for being here and being guests and being willing to share your wisdom. I know that I appreciate it and I know our listeners will too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Jerry, Michelle, and Jazzy. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you heard something that grew in your heart, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.edu ec slash love always.